And let's pray one more time before we open God's Word together here this morning. Father, we have ears. We pray that you would help us to hear. We have minds. We pray that you would help us to understand. We have hearts. We pray that you would affect them. That you would minister to us by your Spirit. That you would be in our midst here this afternoon. And that we would know that we have encountered you, the living God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 20, verse 29 through 21, 11. This is the holy and errant word of God. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Our text this morning, Jesus asks a very pointed and very direct question, a searching question, I think of the two blind men that are there on the road. He asks them, what is it that you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? I wonder if you and I were to answer that question, what our response would be. Jesus, this is what I want you to do for me. 
Like you, I listened this weekend as various politicians told us what they thought we want them to do for us. We also heard from various politicians from both parties telling us what they thought we needed from them. Like many of you, I, I voted this week, and when we vote, we are voting with expectations of what we want from them, the ones that we vote for. This is my habit. I think many of you have this habit on an election year, the, the night of the election. I tend to stay up way later than I should, uh, watching the returns and watching what the response is and watching that kind of color by number that happens on my TV screen. I remember a number of years ago during one of the presidential elections watching as the returns came in and then the announcement was made who the next president of the United States was going to be. And I remember they, they panned to a celebrity that was standing amidst a crowd and when it was announced who the President of the United States would be, that celebrity just began crying. I remember watching tears run down that person's face and watching them grab other people in the crowd and jumping up and down and in excitement. I remember being struck by how emotional that person was and, and that affected me to some degree. In some ways, I was surprised to learn a couple of years later after this man had been president for a couple of years that the celebrity was no longer talking to this president. Uh, the tears of joy had turned into tears of aggravation and disappointment and sadness because expectations weren't met. And yet they were so high to begin with. Our expectations exceed, more often than not, what will ever be delivered, and the result of that is disappointment. And every four or eight years, we do this, some criteria at the beginning, some criteria at the end, because leaders tend to disappoint. Sometimes it's their fault, but oftentimes it's our fault. Our expectations exceed their office, or our expectations exceed their person. They just can't fulfill it. Two accounts this morning. I'll have to be brief as we go through these, but I want us to see the expectations these people have of Jesus and what Jesus delivers. What do you expect from Jesus, and what does He give? I do think in the midst of this world and in the midst of all of these dashed expectations, both of these passages seek to orient you and I to looking at Jesus as King. And there is great hope in that. I was reading a pastor this week who was on Twitter. He's not a pastor that I know. I didn't even search him out. I was not aware of him before. I couldn't even tell you his name if you asked me today. I didn't search to see where he pastors. I just saw that he did a tweet, and that tweet kind of went viral. All kinds of people retweeted it, and all kinds of people liked it. And this was the tweet. He said, as a pastor, there are many of us, as a pastor, 
I want to encourage folks to avoid toxic theology today and every day. And then he went on to point out what he believed was toxic theology, this phrase. No matter what happens, Jesus is king. He said about that phrase, this is a form of faith that invalidates the lived experiences of faithful people all over the country who have been harmed by, and then he went on to describe who they have been harmed by. Toxic theology. Toxic theology to say no matter what happens, Jesus is king. Now, I understand what he's aimed at. I understand that can be a throwaway line and it can be used to silence people. And I want to be gracious and generous to this pastor. But that is not toxic theology. That is life-giving theology. And I wouldn't for a moment hesitate to tell you Jesus is king and he is reigning. He's king and he's reigning. And I want you to see this king, to rest at all times underneath this king, to look forward with great anticipation to the consummation of his kingdom. This passage helps us to do that. We begin with blind men by the road, and these blind men are crying out to Jesus as He is walking down the road with His disciples and with a crowd of people. They are crying out, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. Now, there is a crowd around Jesus that is traveling with Him, and John in his gospel will tell us the reason for that. He says it is because Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the grave in Bethany. And the news of Jesus raising Lazarus from the grave has spread, and so people have come out. Jesus has hit a kind of celebrity status, if you will. And so all kinds of people are surrounding him, and they are walking with him, and they are following him as he makes his way into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and also to put forward his life for the sake of sinners to die. These blind men, they have suffered. They, though, have heard of Christ. They have heard of what Christ has done and what Christ can do. And so they are looking to Christ, and they are calling out to him. They are pained people, people that have suffered greatly, and yet I think in that situation their pains are even being multiplied more because they're crying out, Son of David, have mercy on us. And here you have this crowd of people that are telling them to be quiet, be silent, and just throwing salt in the wound of these two men. But they remind me of Christian and Pilgrim's Progress when Christian is walking away from the city of destruction and on his way to the wicket gate and all of his friends and family members are yelling for him to return back to the city of destruction, Christian will put his fingers in his ears and he will start running towards the wicket gate and pursuing it all the more. And These two men are like that. They are filling their mouth even more with crying out to Jesus. 
son of David, have mercy on us. Some of you need their example this morning. There are some of you who know what Jesus has to offer. You know what He can do for you, and yet you have all of these voices that are calling to you and telling you to be quiet and telling you to turn back and telling you not to seek Him diligently. But you know what He has. And you do well to follow their example here. They recognize Him as King. They ascribe to Him that messianic title here in the text, Son of David. That is a title that comes from the covenant that God makes with David. And in the Davidic covenant, God says to David that he shall have a son. David shall have a son that shall reign upon the throne of Israel forever. And so when they are crying out, Son of David, they are recognizing Jesus as the fulfillment of this prophecy. They see Him as this King, as this Anointed One, as this Messiah who has been promised by God and who has now come into the world. And you'll notice that Jesus doesn't rebuke them for calling Him Son of David. No, He welcomes such praise because that is who He is. He is the King. And He is on His way into the city of the kings, the city of David, to establish His kingdom forever. Now what's interesting, at least to me in this text, is the response of these two blind men to Jesus' question because it is a response of, I think, incredible faith. Jesus asked them, what is it that you want me to do for you? Now, I want you to think about these blind men. These blind men at this time, there would have been no community programs. There would have been no work projects. There would have been no mercy stores or mercy projects to provide for them. If you were blind and you couldn't work, you had one recourse, and that was to sit by the road and to beg for money to be given to you. Money so that you could buy food to eat. And so no doubt these two men are sitting by the road, going from Bethany into Jerusalem because it's Passover, and there will be all kinds of pilgrims on this road, and they are sitting by this road to beg for money so that they have something to eat. And yet, when Jesus asked them, what is it that you would have me to do for you? They don't reply with, give us money. Now think about the risk here. They recognize that he's the son of David. They recognize that he's royalty. And so in their minds, there had to be some sense that, look, this is the opportunity of a lifetime. If this guy gives us money, it could fill our coffers. But when he asks, they don't ask for money. They ask, Lord, let our eyes be opened. That's a big request. What faith. They're blind, but they see better than everyone else in the crowd. They know who Jesus is, and they know what Jesus can and what Jesus will do. And so Matthew tells us that when Jesus hears this, that He, quote, looks in pity upon them and He opens their eyes. And that's the first thing I want you to see about Jesus in this text. He's a king of compassion. A king of compassion. There's that old truth, what is the best form of government? And the 
Well, it's asked usually, what is the worst form of government? And the answer is a, a bad king. What's the best form of government? A good king. And surely, a good king is, is marked by compassion for his subjects. Matthew tells us, simply to end this passage, that the two blind men, quote, recovered their sight and they followed him. What else are you going to do when a king of compassion extends his mercy and his grace to you, opens your eyes? You can't help but just follow him. And so they join in the throng. They now are disciples of Christ. They are now going to follow him wherever he leads. But then... We have a scene in which expectations are not met. This crowd coming from Jerusalem, from Bethany, and witnessing, having witnessed this miracle of Lazarus, and that now the disciples are part of, and now these two formerly blind men are part of, are headed on their way into Jerusalem. And John tells us that another crowd begins to come out of Jerusalem. And this crowd comes out of Jerusalem to meet Jesus because they have heard about Him raising Lazarus from the grave. And so you have these two great crowds that are coming and they converge upon one another here on this road to Jerusalem. Now the crowd coming from Jerusalem could have been huge. It is the Passover, Josephus, that first century A.D. Jewish historian will tell us that in A.D. 66, so about 30 years down the road from this time in our gospel here, that there were 2.7 million Jews in Jerusalem for the Passover that year. That was just Jews, not foreigners too. So even if we took a conservative estimate, we could say maybe there were 2 million Jews there in Jerusalem. And we see here in the text that all the city was stirred up about him. So how many came out to meet Jesus? We don't know. But you have these two converging crowds that come together. And it almost becomes like a, a picture from a Hollywood set. Matthew tells us they were putting their cloaks and palm branches on the road before him. Why palm branches? Because they had become a, a national symbol. National symbol of deliverance. When Simon Maccabeus, that Jewish military leader, had led a revolt against the Seleucids who had conquered Jerusalem and shut down the temple, he had driven them out. And when he was entering the city with his army, this is what was put on the ground before him were palm branches. And this is what was waved in the air, palm branches. He was a deliverer. And so... We see them waving palm branches. This is, this is a royal greeting. But the palm branches ripe with symbolism and tells us what these Jews in this crowd expected of Jesus. But it's not just the palm branches. You hear their shouts. They shout Hosanna, literally give salvation now. And then they quote Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. If Jesus was asked that penetrating question of that crowd as he did of those two blind men, what is it that you want me to do for you? The answer of that crowd would have been, we want you to deliver us now. Save us now. They believed he would be the Davidic king, the Messiah. 
They were hoping he would be the one that would deliver them from the yoke of Roman government and Roman rule, and they wanted it now. The scene here is, is reminiscent of scenes throughout ancient history, before this, after this. I've read a number this week when a, a conquering general would enter into a city. One of the more famous is when Alexander the Great enters the city of Babylon. And there is a Roman historian who catalogs what it looked like when Alexander rode into the city of Babylon after conquering it. He writes that, that uh, Alexander ordered his men to advance into the city as if they were going into battle, and the Babylonians lined the walls, eager to have a view of their new king. And then this historian tells us that the whole road entering the city was clothed with flowers and garlands, and they set up at intervals on both sides of the road silver altars that were heaped with frankincense and all kinds of perfumes. The herds of cattle and horses and lions and leopards were carried along in cages, and next came chanters singing songs and priests and musicians, and then came the cavalry at at the end with their equipment that was shining bright in the sun. And then finally, Alexander rode in in his chariot. The great generals of the time, the great conquerors of the time, they always came into the city on a war horse or in a chariot. We are told by some that took down this case with Alexander that when he was pulled in in a chariot, he was pulled by his chariot was pulled by two elephants that he had conquered, that he had taken from Darius's army when he had defeated Darius. Why? Why do you ride into the city you've conquered on a great war horse or in a chariot, even pulled by elephants? Because it speaks of strength. It speaks of power. But notice Jesus does not enter this way. In fact, he arranges purposefully to enter in quite another way upon a donkey. This king comes gently, as a prophecy from Zechariah 9 says. He comes in humility, as Matthew quotes here from Zechariah 9. This is a different type of conqueror. This is a different kind of king. Not only a king of compassion, he is a king of humility. And this the people did not expect. This the people did not want. Matthew quotes the prophecy from Zechariah 9, but he leaves out an important part. If I was quoting Zechariah 9, 9 this is not the part I would have left out. I, this is the part I probably would have highlighted, but the part that Matthew leaves out is this. Righteous and having salvation is he. Righteous and salvation is he. That seems pretty key, Matthew, to that Zechariah 9.9, 9, but he leaves it out. Why? Because he wants to highlight the gentle humility of Christ as he enters into the city. He's bringing it to the forefront, the forefront here. This is the point as he comes into Jerusalem as the king. He's a different kind of king. The kind of king that is a king of humility. He has not come to be enthroned by men. He has come to be killed by men. 
but they were suffering people. They have been subjugated people. They are being ruled by a, a pagan Roman government. They are not allowed to worship as they desire to worship. They are inhibited in their religious practice. Give us justice now, Jesus. And he could have. He could have turned the crowd on the Romans. He could have led them in revolt, but that isn't how he conquers. His kingdom is not and could not be a human creation. It could not be secured by an army of men. His kingdom is a divine work that only could be secured by divine sacrifice. And so he takes a donkey and he rides it into Jerusalem as a sign of this. And it tempers the whole situation, doesn't it? It depends who you read, commentators, theologians, Biblical scholars, depends who you read, it's always noted that there are two kind of major crowds that we see here. There's a crowd here that is singing his praise as he comes into Jerusalem, and then there will be another crowd that we will be pointed to that when that appears before Pontius Pilate, that when Pilate is is saying to them, who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or this Jesus? And they will cry out, crucify him, crucify him. It depends. Who you read, some will say, well, they're two drastically different crowds. Some will say, no, they had to be, some of the people that were in the first crowd had to be in the second crowd. But I think some say it can't be the same crowds. They can't be singing hallelujahs here, and then just a few days later be yelling, crucify him, crucify him here. That, that seems too abrupt. I don't find it that shocking if that is indeed the case. He didn't meet their expectations. He didn't do what they wanted. The contrast, I think, between the blind men and the crowd is, is just stark. The blind men, they can't see, but they have great expectations of Jesus that are informed by faith. The crowd can see, and they have great expectations of Jesus, but it's informed by fervor, not by faith. And so the crowd will become disappointed. The crowd desired deliverance, but they couldn't see and didn't see the greater deliverance that they needed. The, their hope is too limited. Their desire is too tepid. There, there is a base hope there. That's right. There's a base desire there. That's right. The scope is just too feeble. And that is often the case for us. When we are disappointed, it's because the scope is too feeble. If we were to look at Zechariah 9, we would see that much of what these people desire, much of what you and I desire, much of what our culture desires is prophesied there of Christ's kingdom and Christ's kingdom to come. Freedom from our enemies, governmental tyranny, Romans, Democrats, Republicans. How about from Satan and any vile governing authority that carries forth his agenda? Zechariah 9 speaks to that. He surpasses expectations. People want peace. Everybody wants peace. Well, how about world peace? 
But how about not just world peace? How about everlasting, eternal world peace? Zechariah 9 speaks to that. We want justice. We want everything to be right. We want things to be set according to a right standard. Zechariah 9 speaks to that. If we're honest, in the immediate, our expectations are often not met, and so... Like this crowd, we walk away disappointed eventually. We stop talking, not to the president, we'll stop talking to God. Isn't it interesting that when we're disappointed with what we see in our world or what we see in our church or what we see in our family or what we see in our community, when we're disappointed with God, that the first thing that goes is we stop praying. But more often than not, Disappointment you and I feel with Christ in this life is not the result of Him not meeting our right desires, but rather a result of Him not meeting our limited expectations in His time, in our time, in our way. He exceeds them, but He always exceeds them in His time and in His way. Always. You can't manipulate this Christ. You can't force this king to do what you want him to do and look like you want him to look and to act in the timing that you want him to act. He doesn't work that way. If he did, he's not king. He's not sovereign. When he acts in his time and his way, it's always for the better. Think about like the child who wants that leftover cold chicken McNugget that sits on the dining room table from lunch. He's got hunger pains. He needs it. He wants it. He's hungering for it. And his mom refuses to allow him to have it. Doesn't she understand? Well, she's sitting there and she's in the kitchen and she's making a five-course meal with chocolate cake for dessert. He can't see it. He doesn't understand it. The desire to have that hunger appeased isn't bad. It's just too small. The mother has a better vantage point. The desire to, to be satiated in the moment, it's not bad. It's just too little. She knows what's best, and she knows what joy lies on the other side of waiting just a little longer for the better. And yet, Children will throw themselves on the floor and they will kick and they'll scream, You're starving me to death! You don't love me! No. Our sovereign of compassion and humility knows what is for our best and He will always deliver. Always deliver. Even to the point of dying on a cross. No matter what happens, Jesus is king. That is not toxic theology. That is life-giving theology. Paul wrote, comforting the Roman church, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. He reigns. 
who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Peter, to comfort in truth, wrote to the persecuted church, Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. He reigns. With angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. It's not toxic theology. John, who is writing to comfort the churches in Asia Minor with truth, writes, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. He reigns. When you and I are discouraged, when we're depressed, when we're anxious, we're disappointed by the things happening in our world, in our culture, in our church, in our family, this is where we run. He reigns. If His reigning is not a comfort for Christians, then I don't know what it means to be a Christian. He reigns. All the mess in this world, all the pains of this world, all the dashed expectations of this world, they would crush if it was not for the solace that He reigns. And thank God that it's not according to my will, that it's according to His. It is always for my better. But that crowd couldn't understand that day, Jesus did. His refusal to overthrow Rome in that moment was actually even more an act of pity and more an act of compassion than what he showed to those two blind beggars on the side of the road on the way into Jerusalem. He knew that he had to go to the cross so that all his people might see. He knew that he had to go to the cross so that his kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom, so that his reign would be an everlasting reign, and not just a reign for a generation. He's not piddling with throwing over Rome, but with upending the kingdom and domain of darkness. He could see it. And they couldn't. He had all his sons and daughters, all those who were his in view. I may not understand why he doesn't do this or do that yet, or why he does this or why he does that. But I do know this, that when he returns, every single expectation that you and I have of him and of his kingdom will be surpassed. There will be no tears of sadness. Martin Luther once wrote, we could say this, on the eve of an election, after an election, regardless of who wins. Martin Luther once wrote this. He said, When I'm troubled by thoughts about political questions, I take up a psalm 
or text to Paul and fall asleep over it. Or you could take up John's revelation and fall asleep over it. Where John writes this, Revelation 11, foreseeing the day, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. It's not toxic. It's life-giving. And I pray you find rest in it today, regardless of where you're at, and you find rest in it tomorrow, and in four years, and in eight years, He reigns. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we exalt you this morning. We exalt you, O Son, our Lord and our King. We exalt you, O Spirit, who works the will of the Father and the Son in this world. Give us eyes to look to you in faith, to know that thy kingdom has come, and to pray that it would continue to come on earth as it is in heaven. May we find peace under your lordship, comfort under your rule, strength in your presence. In the holy name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, we pray. Amen.